this has been a pretty tough week for me and probably for many, many people out there. I watched, as many as you did, that horrific video of the final moments of George Floyd's life. I heard him pleading with police, telling them, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, begging them to let him get up. George Floyd had the weight of three full-grown men on him, not just Derek Chauvin on his neck when he was killed. Derek Chauvin's face looked totally unsympathetic. At times he appears to push his knee down even harder on George Floyd's neck. Protests, of course, rightly have ignited all over the world in solidarity. The protesters have made it clear that the United States has a history of enslaving, beating, brutalizing, and killing black people in America, and that this has been going on for centuries. And those images, those sounds are just indelibly etched into my mind, along with other moments of brutality that came to light last week. Scenes of racially motivated violence aren't exclusive to the United States, of course. You don't have to look very hard to find racial prejudice here in Canada. Like the Facebook video of Josh Gookum from Little Sam and Carmack's First Nation, which shows him being brutally punched in the face when he was being arrested. That video sparked protests in Whitehorse in the Yukon. Canadians are guilty of racial prejudice, not just against First Nations people, against Black people, against many people. Martin Luther King Jr. is one of the best known, most respected, most eloquent spokespersons of the long road for justice and liberty for Black Americans in the past 100 years. He was diligent in his work to promote racial justice. Once when he was in jail, he penned a letter which became known as the letter from Birmingham City Jail. And in that letter, he describes the brutality that the protesters faced, the misuse of police power and force in the 1960s. And the letter ends by asking local church leaders why they weren't willing to stand alongside of the black men and women in the United States in the fight against racism. And that gives us something really profound to think about. Racial prejudice has been an issue for a long time, in fact, for thousands of years. But here's the thing. If Christians would have read their Bibles and thought about what God teaches regarding the equality of all human beings, then maybe we would have been a stronger force in the struggle for racial equality if we waged peaceful protests against racism and had taught the world what is clearly on the heart of God, and then maybe the world would have changed. In the first chapter of Genesis, and that's, uh, I'm thankful to Helen Reed for the way she read that, uh, the readings today, but for that first chapter of Genesis, we clearly see that there was a, a universe. There was, uh, before the universe, sorry, before the universe, there was God, and that God's eternal, that God has no beginning, no end. God's the creator of everything. God is absolute. Everything else in the universe is a derivative of God. That includes all of us. John Lennox holds the chair of mathematics and philosophy in Oxford. He's convinced that this description of the relativity of people to God and the universe is accurate. God is the most important being, the most valuable being that exists. Everything else has meaning. Everything else has worth because it or, and us were derived from God and his worth. And discovering that there is a creator, we discover that all human beings 
are made in the image of God. That means you and I bear his likeness. It doesn't matter where we come from. You and I are mirrors of his image. We carry with us the moral and affectional capacity of God. You're created in his image. And so are all the other people on earth, all peoples, all races, all cultural divisions are made in God's image. The Bible clearly asserts that the value of a person comes from our creator. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, which we heard this morning, is clear about that. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That's all of us. That's everybody on the planet. All humankind is the work of the ultimate master artist. Think about the implications for that for a minute. Why is an original painting by Vincent van Gogh worth millions of dollars, but a print of the same picture is worth about 20 bucks? Because you're the work of the master's artist's hands. And so you are of infinite value, you're of great value. God spoke to Samuel in the Old Testament and tried to set him straight on how God sees things and how it's different than from how we see things. And he said this, this is from 1 Samuel chapter 16, the Lord doesn't look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at our hearts. Races look at the outward appearance and they're afraid. They fail to look at the heart and see the image of God there. They fail to see the brotherhood and sisterhood of all humankind. And in the New Testament, in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul writes, There is no Jew or Gentile, neither is there free nor slave. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. The Bible's clear. God invented equality and social justice. We are all equal. So, why is the world the way it is? Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we murder and cheat and lie and enslave others? Why do we treat some groups of people as inferior? What's wrong with us? What are we doing for heaven's sake? This is a problem for every person on the earth. The problem is that we've exchanged the fact that we are made in the image of God for the image that we see in the mirror. We want to exalt ourselves to be God. We've listened to the lies of secularism. Instead of trusting in God, we put our trust in the economy or finance or ourselves or politicians or our judicial system, not God, because we're rebellious. We rebelled against God. We've forgotten the love that God offers us. And every day we commit treason against the king of the universe. That's what we call sin. Sin is something that sort of separates us from God. And what racism is and does is sin. Racism is sinful because all of us are made in the same image of God. So what's the cure for racism? Is it more laws? Is it more people of different racial origins in the House of Commons? Is it more ethnic diversity in the workplace or on the sports field? More leaders like Martin Luther King? That couldn't be a bad thing. Some of those things may help, but they aren't the best option because we need to reach and change people's hearts and minds. We need to get 
together on this and help everybody to see we're all equal. And the only thing that will cure racism is the good news of Jesus. Why do I say that? You're probably going, oh man, he's, he's way too evangelical here. Well, another person who thought, fought against racism and fought against slavery was a man named William Wilberforce. Wilberforce fought against racism for 50 years and never gave up. He was born in 1759. He came from a wealthy English family. He grew up going to church, but he left because he didn't see how it made a difference to anything. Religion just seemed to be this cold thing that was going on. It didn't affect anybody in their hearts. He ran for parliament just for a laugh. He was kind of this wealthy playboy kind of a guy. And because his friend was going to run, he ran too. And so he won the election. Wilberforce became a polit political um, person uh, with this love of late night partying and upper class sort of unbeliever instincts. And on the long holidays between the sessions of Parliament, he'd often travel to the French Riviera and, and he'd go with a group of friends and maybe some family members too. One year he invited an old classmate from Cambridge to come along. His name was Isaac Milner. And to Wilberforce's shock, Isaac Milner was a Christian. Even worse, he was an evangelical Christian. And under Milner's guidance, the two engaged in this conversation. It started sort of slow and careful. And it was about the Bible. You know, what, why, why should I read the Bible? Who is Jesus? Why did Jesus have to die? Who's the Holy Spirit? Why do we need forgiveness? Just about sounds like an alpha course, doesn't it? <laughs> and over the course of many months, Wilber, Wilberforce's intellectual agreement with the Christian doctrine turned into a profound conviction. He began to see the disconnect between those who had really thought about God and what has been revealed in the Bible and the nominalists. He said that we expect people to be Christians without working, without study, without inquiring, without asking questions. True faith is a matter of the mind and also a matter of the heart. And the more we learn intellectually about God, the more we discover the beauty of God, the justice of God, the grace of God. And the more we discover, the more our hearts are set on fire for God. Wilberforce wrote lots of different things, but he only wrote one book about his faith. And it's called A Practical View of Christianity. And in it, he shows that true Christianity gives us a new, tangible, spiritual love for Christ. This new love is rooted in the great doctrines of the Bible about sin, about Christ, about faith. Wilberforce says, if you want faith to move mountains... You need the great doctrines of the gospel and you need to understand them and then you'll see the truth in them. Wilberforce moved mountains. He changed the whole group of laws about slavery in the United Kingdom and it took him 50 years of patience and struggle. Faith begins by recognizing that we have all sinned, that we've all exchanged that glory that we're made of and from and we're made to enjoy and magnify. We've sinned against God. We've exchanged God for other gods, especially the one we see in the mirror. We find our satisfaction not in knowing God or admiring God or treasuring God or trusting God or reflecting God, but our, ple our pleasure is in ourselves being exalted. And scripture's full of statements about the human condition. For example, 
in Genesis chapter 8, God speaks to Noah after the great flood. And it says, so this was when the sort of the sins of the world had been washed away by the flood. And there was Noah and his small family. And it says this, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. We're not mostly good and a little bit bad. The Bible says we're depraved. And that's why Jesus needed to come. And, and you know, we don't like language like that. We don't like it that it might say in the Bible, there's supposed to be this book of love and that the Bible says that God sees us as depraved. But it's the truth because God's given us the freedom to choose. We're all capable of evil. But the really good part in the Bible is, you know, God's given us this freedom and, and we're sort of misusing it, um, a lot misusing it, but that there is an antidote. It's available, it's tested, it's ready for you if you just accept it. Second Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as someone understands slowness. Instead, he's patient with you. He doesn't want anybody to perish he wants everybody to come to repentance. So the great thing is this. This is amazing. You've heard this before, but hear it again for the first time. God's attitude is this. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him, put his trust in him, put their faith in him, would have eternal life. Because God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. No, he sent his son so that the world might be saved. This is the most amazing promise since time began, that even though we're enemies of God, even though we rebel against him, he still loves us so much that he's willing to die for us. Isaiah chapter 53 describes this hundreds of years before Jesus actually walked on the earth and then died for us. Isaiah, through God, says this, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. But surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on Jesus, on him, the iniquity of us all. That's the work of Jesus on the cross. This is the most powerful act of love ever, that one person died for us all. How do we relate to that, this death that happened uh, 2,000 years ago? I'll share the story that Nikki Gumbel sometimes tells about the, the death of Jesus on the cross. And it has to do with the death camp, Auschwitz. It became a killing center during World War II, where the largest number of European Jews were murdered by the Nazis. One Christian man who died there became a true hero of our time. His name was Maximilian Kolbe, and he was a Polish priest and a prisoner. His prison number was 16770 in Auschwitz, 
and he lived in cell block 12. In July 1941, a man from Colby's bunker escaped and the remaining men of the bunker were led out and stood before the commandant who told them, the fugitive has not been found. 10 of you will pay for this with your lives. Among the 10 selected to die was Frances Ganitsek, and he cried out, my poor wife, my poor children, what will they do? And when he uttered this cry of dismay, Maximilian Colby stepped forward silently, took off his cap, stood before the commander, and he said, I'm a Catholic priest. Let me take his place. I'm old. He has a wife and children. And amazingly, his request was granted. Ganitschek later recalled, I could only thank him with my eyes. I was stunned. I could hardly grasp what was going on, the immensity of it. I, the condemned, am to live. And someone else willingly and voluntarily offers his life for me, a stranger. Ganitschek spent the rest of his life telling others all over the world about the gift of life that he'd received. And in the same way, we're condemned to die because of our sin. And Jesus steps into our place and he dies so that we can live. It's the story of God's love for you. It's personal. It's real. It's transformative. It gives us life. Jesus' life in us wells up inside of us, brings us hope and joy. And we just need to accept that and thank Jesus for that. When you come to a deep understanding of the God who came to serve you, came to love you, came to give you life, it changes you. And when you realize that you and I and all the people of the world, we are truly brothers and sisters created by God. It doesn't matter what your ethnic background is. God loves each one of us, and he wants us and expects us to learn to love one another. God's grieved when we fail to show one another dignity or respect because of race, because of gender. We are all guilty. That's corporate grief. We're members of a society that's produced a system in which results in discrimination, and we all need to ask God to forgive us. And as we begin to live the amazing truths and doctrines of love, we begin to share with others God's love and life and joy that's within us. On the night that he was going to, before he was going to die, Martin Luther King spoke at a church in Memphis. He spoke of his faith and the truth contained in the Bible. And he said, like anybody, I'd like to live a long time. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land and I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as people will get to the promised land. Jesus offers you a place in that promised land and he offers you a new life in which we can spread this good news of the life and joy that there is in Christ and how we're all brothers and sisters. Amen. I want to just give you 
a moment to think about that and then let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanks that we have life because of you and that we can know this amazing new life because of Jesus' sacrifice for us, that he stepped into our place that we might live and he would die for us. And we praise you and thank you for that. And Lord, just pray for each one of us that you'll help us to really understand what that means and to allow you more fully into our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.